Chapter 33 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter 33 As One Triumphant. And here, rightfully, the story ends, with the end of what was either a very singular biological experiment or the most extraordinary and sinister invasion by which the race of man was ever threatened. The rest is all surmise, conjecture, the muddling work of many divergent minds. The burning of the old Girard place, together with what was later found in its ruins, and the strange story of the fire survivors, caused considerable excitement at the time and started some controversies of which the ripples have not yet quite subsided. The unpleasant heaps of purplish jelly outside the house had rotted clean away by morning, and had been absorbed by the earth past analyzing. It seemed probable to the world at large that the jelly, if it had ever existed, had no connection with the beasts, admitting that they had existed, and that the latter had perished in the fire and been utterly consumed, even to their equally problematical bones. The fact that two alleged human corpses had also vanished could not, however, be explained in this manner. O'Hara testified that the bodies of both Markazuma, alias Marco, and Archer Kennedy, alias Chester T. Reed, had sunk in the flood, one having been already lifeless and the other perishing beneath the fury of his own handiwork. It seems a reason that bodies immersed in mud or muddy water would be safe from the incineration. A number of other things were found in said mud, but no bodies. Ergo, Mr. O'Hara was mistaken no bodies had ever been there. By part of his own testimony he had spent at least a portion of his evening's captivity in a dreamy and semi-conscious condition. No doubt this accounted for much that was, well, slightly incredible in the Irish gentleman's testimony. The lady from Mexico, too, was no doubt pardonably mistaken. In moments of excitement delusion is easy. The Irish gentleman, for instance, believed that he had broken Marco's neck twenty-four hours previous to the fire. No doctor was present. He merely assumed that the man was dead on the strength of his own unprofessional judgment. What more likely than that, O'Hara's back turned, Marco rose and walked away. And Kennedy, in all probability, escaped from the burning house alive and comparatively uninjured. Quite likely, master and man were now in hiding together and it was recommended that the police bestir themselves and rout them out. Sven Bjornsson, however, disagreed with the world, though he confided his opinion to none but sympathetic ears. He based it on the fact that every one of the jars, boxes, and other golden vessels dug out of the mud were found open. Even he declined to surmise what force had opened them, and thus destroyed every particle of their diabolical contents. But for a time, at least, the flooded cellar must have been highly charged with the stuff. He knew for a certainty that, exposed to air or impurities, it lost power quickly. The men who dug in those ruins were safe enough, but to Bjornsson it was not strange at all that no bodies were found there. They were present, but dissolved as utterly as though the mire had been a kind of temporary quicklime. There being no corpus delecti, Cullen was spared a trial for manslaughter justifiable or otherwise, and it cannot be truthfully said that he was sorry. He and his dusk lady were really very much in love, 
and it is a pity to be wasting time in jail or law courts when one wishes to be on one's honeymoon. As it was, the investigation was tiresome enough. It ended at last in clouds of doubt, with a few bright spots of definite decision. A burst water main was found to have caused the flood. That, together with the weakening nature of the building's reconstruction, had brought on its sudden collapse. And the insurance people, after deep pondering, set down the fire as resulting from faulty insulation and crossed wires, a favorite explanation for otherwise inexplicable conflagrations. As to the Golden Temple vessels, the state fell heir to them in lack of any other claimant. They may be seen today in a certain national museum, though their value is considered dubious. Authenticity as Aztec relics has never been properly established, and their gold was found to be a thin coat laid over solid copper. Besides them stands an object of still more dubious value, a black stone, in fact shapeless, yet with an odd suggestion of having once possessed a shape, as if the marble of some old, wicked idol had been melted in a hotter flame than science has ever fanned to being. But there is nothing terrible about it now. It is just a black stone. Of course, it may be that McClellan's first surmise was correct, and that Genghis Khan, magnified and distorted by excited imaginations, was the antagonist conquered for a second time by Cullen. Certainly the pseudo-ape had crouched on the dais, and when it grew too hot beneath the fallen debris, such a brute could have leaped the intervening twelve feet of water as it had leaped the forest glades from tree to tree. At the time Cullen himself believed otherwise. To him the whole matter seemed simple enough then. A demon had claimed him. He had conquered the demon in a satisfactorily personal manner, and as to fire out of nothing, flood that wrought swift miracles, and whirlwind that lent the strength of a titan with its breath, why, he had never denied that under the Almighty were powers of good to aid a man as well as evil to crush him. Having met nothing to shake his faith in either his universe or his God, he remained a good Catholic, and the Dusk Lady was duly baptized into that church, loving her Lord too well to quarrel with his religion. But though he is sure of her love today as he was then, he is not so sure of the nature of that last battle. After meeting the thousand and one contemptuous arguments hurled at their heads, he and his companions became at last sure of nothing about it except that he strangled something and flung it into some kind of fire. And so, of the most somber actor in a very strange drama, little remains but a shapeless stone and an uncertain memory and that ever-growing more dreamlike as it recedes into the past. But on that night of nights it was not like a dream at all. It was clear, clear and bright-like, as had been the sight of Talapalan to Cullen. And when those six first emerged from the burning fortress of fear, they had no more doubt of their adventure's sinister nature or of its reality than they had a few moments later of the last strange sight of all, though that was more glorious than sinister. It was a vision all shared, from McClellan, starting on an angry mission in search of Forrester, to Bjornson, just opening his eyes, safe and with his daughter's arms about him. They were among the trees then, some distance from the house. Rhodes lay groaning with the pain of his broken leg, and Cleona had his head in her lap. 
Cullen, very sick and dizzy, with a mangled shoulder and various other wounds, was leaning against a tree and wondering how a man could have the strength of ten one minute and be weak as a kitten the next. And then it was that McClellan stopped in his tracks with a sharp cry of amazement. The others looked where he pointed. Above the fortress of fear the fumes roared high. In a lull of the gale fire crested it with a fuming tongue of scarlet. And as that fiery tongue soared skyward, a vast, diaphanous form plunged through the lashing tree-branches, plunged through and up and up, and flung itself on the flame that bent roaring before it. A vast, impetuous shouting form of turbulent plumes and a face of undying youth. Quetzalcoatl, lord of the air, the wind, the victorious wind. Ah, that pure and violent one, gently, patient, and fiercely intolerant, breath of the wind, sweet places, enemy to all foul vapors and morbid vileness. Great deeds he chants of, and hope, and the courage that is not only of the flesh. "'A heathen god, but a staunch friend,' muttered Cullen. "'I'd be less than a friend myself if I did not admit that I like him.' Bending, the flame streamed out like a banner as a trailing banner of scarlet plumes it followed the shouting one. The End of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.